Hello, folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of a special relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visaview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, also all one word, dot com. And procure a copy of that book and my other works at the Farm's official store, which is at efarmpodcast.store. That is efarmpodcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. In the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material, exclusive gifts and content. All access Patreons get all that, plus access to our monthly Zoom party meeting, where you usually get a lowdown on my uh, ongoing investigations, exclusive presentations, and all kinds of crazy stuff, plus random State of the Union's dispatches from all the places that I travel to, and all kinds of other good stuff. There is going to be some really cool things coming up there in the coming weeks and months, so definitely give it a thought, guys. All right. Today's guest is out of this world. I am incredibly excited for this. He has formal training in both Ariosophy and archaeology. Folks, I give you guys Austin has... Thank you so much for dropping by today, sir. Oh, no problem. No, definitely not Ariosophy. I am. <laughs> Excuse me. It, it, seriology. It's seriology. My mistake. Yeah, no, please. No, those guys are the bad yes. guys. I don't, yeah, yeah, yeah. someone yeah, yeah. who's ethnically Jewish, I don't think I could really. My apologies. I've been saying Ariosophy so long, I've never really had a chance to say Ariosophy before, like on air. So, no, no, it, it's totally <laughs> fine. It's totally fine. I'm sure, you know, the minute I said I'm a dirty yid, they're like, oh, it's like I'm a sure Freudian slip there. I really don't want to have. Oh, uh, yeah. Sorry again. That was like a Freudian slip on my part. <laughs> no, no, it, it's totally cool. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. Okay, guys, this show is going to be off the chain. We're taking one of the deepest dives into ancient Egypt yet attempted. My guest today has a novel take on the legacy of ancient Egypt and its religion, the influence it's had on modern occultism, and the truly disturbing implications of this. Obviously, many significant strains, such as theosophy and thelema, as well as offshoots like those developed by Kenneth Grant, have had a profound reverence for ancient Egypt. They also had a tendency to devolve into authoritarian and even racist ideologies. This is often blamed on the failings of the modern Westerners to understand the complexities of Egyptian spirituality. But what if the darkness was always present? And one that has been begun to reemerge in the modern world in a big way. This is a huge and important topic, and again, want to emphasize how fortunate today's guest was. I am to have today's guest willing to share his research with us. So, on that note, let us start the show. <music>
Okay, let's start off with some of the conventional non-racist, fascistic reasons occultists often give for their reverence for ancient, ancient Egypt, Austinus. Um, well, I think the first, if you're asking me, really has to do with the Greeks. Um, specifically, the importation of new ideas. If you're at all familiar with the way that antiquity gave credence to something, it was all about the fact that it was old. Like getting a new idea out there saying, you know, like, hey, maybe we should do this ritual if it's not 3,000 years old is going to get a lot of pushback. You can read that actually about the things that like Celsus says about Christianity compared to Judaism is that it's like, well, Judaism is weird, but it's old, so it's good. Christianity is weird, but it's new, so it's bad. <laughs> and a lot of the times when someone from Greece or Rome wanted to say, hey, I have a new idea, but it's not really new. It's actually really old. They said, oh, it's Egyptian. And people were like, oh, okay. Now I believe you. I mean, Plato did this all the time you know, with the dialogue between Amun and Thoth in terms of writing. And, you know, that really wasn't an Egyptian idea that writing is bad. In fact, they were sort of very much in love with the use of hieroglyphics and writing to enact both societal and magical change. It just, she wouldn't have said that. And uh, the reason that I think Egypt was chosen most of the time is that it was the one culture that the Greeks didn't really fight with that much in that, you know, they couldn't go and say, oh, this is Persians because the Persians are invading and meddling with their politics every week. They couldn't say this Phoenicians because Phoenicians were ripping them off. They were working with the Persians. You know, they certainly couldn't say it was from the Northern Barbarians or the Scythians. And they knew so little about India that they could basically say anything, it would be fine. But I think that's really the first reason. It's just because Egypt was a great place to give fake legitimacy to new ideas. All right, give us a quick rundown of ancient Egypt's dark side and its implication for various strains of occultism. Uh, sure. I think that one of the things a lot of people who don't really have training in Egyptology don't really notice is that Egypt itself was fundamentally built on xenophobia. Specifically, the idea of killing foreigners and maybe even the common people as sacrament. There is this idea and that, you know, of enacted ritual in which the forces of chaos would be destroyed by the pharaoh or his stand-in or a stand-in for Horus or Amun or someone in order to, you know, guarantee rituals. These weren't just rituals that were done as apotropaically. It's not just like, you know, a sacrifice made to get rid of a plague. These were things that had to happen for the rituals of the state to take place. And because Egypt was so interested in the idea of an enacted ritual, you know, one that was both in a real space and the metaphysical space, a lot of the times the enemies of chaos or I mean, the enemies of the state or the enemies of order would be betrayed by live captured foreigners 
or just whatever commoner was unlucky enough. In fact, um, in this one article, which is just absolutely horrifying on uh, the concept between ma'at and uh, some Chinese word I can't really pronounce. Um, there is the idea that this was the case, for example. Furthermore, Egyptians regarded themselves as RMT, people, an ideological stereotype, in opposition to foreigners whose human condition was considered disputable. Such an idea probably derived from oligarchic nature of Egyptian power, in which common Egyptians were frequently assimilated to the conditions of the enemies, and thus could be among the nine bows, as opposed to the P-T, the nobility, who were expected to trample on the nine bows, which I think just shows you a lot. All right, so one of the most fascinating aspects for me that you raised in your show notes is the role that drama and live action role-playing or LARPing was enshrined in ritual. This was something I'd started to note in my own studies of Neoplatonism. So concept that there was like this cosmic drama that plays out in the skies every night that humanity must reenact in our earthly domain. Unsurprisingly, it would seem that this is a concept that the Greeks derived from the Egyptians. So how did this play uh, into their theatrics? Well, I mean, to be fair, Egypt really did invent the passion play, you know. Um, I forgot who said it, because just Greek philosopher, you know, was talking about how theater was Egyptian, because of course making it Egyptian meant it was old and therefore that was good. But he talked about, you know, how they'd resurrect, they do a play on the resurrection of Osiris, I think once a year, and they'd have giant puppets with giant phalluses and singing and dancing and all sorts of fun stuff. I mean, also the pharaoh was, you know, would oftentimes be put into the play acting role of a god statue where he'd just be sitting on a bark. And, you know, just people would be screaming, I am a moon or I am Horus. But really what's I'm going to go into now is specifically the idea of the use of violence. Because, you know, it's going out there and masturbating into the river and saying, I am happy, happy as the God, not happy because I'm masturbating, is weird, but it's not really sinister. It's just exhibitionism. But, you know, this was a big thing. There's this guy, uh, Kerry Molstein, or Molestein, and he talks about the fact that there was no divide between sacred and mundane. There wasn't. There was no divide between sacred and mundane. There was no um, idea that you shouldn't act out um, the ritual dramas. In fact, you know, there's evidence also in sites that when he says, you know, you will be executed by the knives of Amun, there, uh, the executioner was Amun. Because there's like, you know, if you were fulfilling out that functionality, then you are mirroring the divine, and therefore you become assimilated into it. In fact, one of the rituals uh, was ritual fencing, which was done with sticks. If you ever saw someone claiming that martial arts were invented in Egypt, this is probably what they were talking about. And ritual fights would be a thing, you know, in uh, the Hittite Empire, they'd have a big fight between the men of Hattie and the men of 
some other Hittite province before Shupuyuluma unified them. And, you know, it, it was play acting, but it was essentially more like your standard crappy Civil War reenactment. Very few people actually got hurt and everyone was there of their own volition, oftentimes heavily littered up. In Egypt, on the other like hand, the, they, uh, were like the Roman gladiatorial games kind of like a um, kind of like a successor to that, if you will, because I know they had originally had like what kind of a spiritual context or something. Oh yeah, yeah, they were sacrificed to Saturn, but um, they were absolutely sacrificed to Saturn. In fact, there was this book I remember reading, a Cruelty and Spectacle, which talked about you know the idea that one, it was seen as sort of like a almost a way of trans safe transference and the way to sort of, you know, get the battle and death God happy without having to kill people that mattered. Fascinating. In fact, it was often done for the dead, which is a common theme is that, you know, like dead, rich assholes want more people to fight and die for them. You know, you can read about this in Iliad where you know, one of the things that Achilles does on Patroclus' tomb is he's like, all right, Trojans, you have to kill each other, you know, because Patroclus wants it. But what's going back to with the Egyptians is that they would actually bring in a Nubian to be forced to fight the Egyptian with the Nubian standing for the forces of chaos. And there's some debate about whether the Nubian was even allowed to win or it was just beat the slave with a stick. It's very clear that like a lot of the rating done, and so the enactment is like almost kind of fulfilling like the discordian role in this ritual drama. Then it's like the agent of chaos, if you will. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that was okay. essentially what all foreigners were seen as were agents of chaos who must be continuously crushed underfoot. You know, they are all children of Set. They are all the adversary the satan hell even the gods of other nations were all considered to be forms of set like the hittite storm god was like oh yeah yeah that's set ball set and people were like oh my god you know yahweh is set it's like according to egyptians like yeah if they weren't ruled by a greek overclass they'd probably call zeus set so really anything foreign was the Discordian role. That's great. <laughs> uh, sorry, I didn't, I don't mean to keep interrupting you, but yeah, I'm trying to put this a little bit in context too for modern listeners. Uh, no, no, it's totally fine. I, I, I have a tendency to ramble and it's also just weird esoteric stuff that's usually very academic. All right, we'll continue uh, then, Austinese. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's really all I had to say is the idea that you know, at least in terms of the enacted drama, it was fine. And especially because all of Egyptian society, especially for the nobility, was um, an enacted drama. Something like, how does, um, you know, kind of like scrying or theurgy sort of play into this? 
uh, because I mean, I know from reading what's her name, Francis Yates and what have you, there was uh, kind of this whole notion that uh, this process went back to ancient Egypt where the gods would come down and inhabit the, uh, the statues and the temples and they would speak to them through the statues. And then later the Neoplatonists, uh, you know, adopted this practice, but instead of using the statues, basically they invited the gods into themselves and so forth. I mean, the Egyptians did both. That was like a thing, is that um, the idea of a god inhabiting a statue is just sort of standard for the ancient Near Eastern worldview. You could go from anywhere from Mycenae to the Elamites, which would be a modern day Iran. They probably have something similar of put the god's essence in the statue. That was just sort of how things worked. But the Egyptians actually did do something that I wouldn't really call scrying, I'd call it more like mediumship or channeling, which would actually be tied to this idea of an act of rituals. That, for example, the king was thought to actually get his kingship by being possessed or imbued by the ka or spirit soul of Horus. And that, you know, once he died and became Osiris, then the soul or spirit of Horus would move on to the next reigning king. And similarly, a lot of lesser nobles, at least in the old kingdom, according to some scholars, would be forced to, you know, pretend to be the gods of their province and hold, you know, fake god court, the king. All right. So do you want to get into Pharaoh's role in all of this? Oh, yeah, totally. Totally. That's, uh, I mean, it's really interesting how much we romanticize the idea pharaonic kingship i don't really think it's insane to me honestly i think it's because they had very nice stuff i think it's because you know egypt has a very nice aesthetic looks a lot better than a lot of other civilizations you know but the pharaoh was essentially in many ways, not the protector like the Mesopotamian king. You know, in Mesopotamia and Greece, and really anywhere else in the world, at least anywhere else from that time period we have records of, the king was meant to sort of act as an intercessor between man and the gods and was firmly, for the most part, on mankind's side. They were also usually subordinate to a priesthood or council of elders. You can read about this in Gilgamesh, where Gilgamesh still goes and asks, you know, like, the council, hey, am I okay if I do this? Or when he tells Ishtar to fuck off. Um, and there was this idea that, you know, the king was supposed to justify things for the people. The king was the herdsman. The king was the shepherd of the people. And you can definitely put in sinister ideals into that, but it, it is what it is. And of course, I'm not defending the Sumerian king. I'm just saying is that at least they pretended to be interested in the well-being of the poor. And saying that, you know, I am here to make sure that justice works. The pharaoh, at least from the beginning, is, uh, was seen essentially as a top predator. He was not seen as someone who at least at first ensured justice for Ma'at, because Ma'at was sort of already ensured by the Nile and having a pharaoh. In fact, um, Narmer, or maybe it's a later Old Kingdom pharaoh, was, you know, uh, literally depicted as subjugating the other gnomes. Not unifying, not protecting, 
subjugated. He had the glyph for like, you know, I beat these people and took them as property. Which is, for that time, despite what many people will tell you, is quite rare not to have some form of fake justification. Like, if you read The Steel of the Vultures, there's a lot of pussyfooting around between Uma and Lagash about why we're going to war. Even Naram Sin, who is a bloodthirsty warlord, you know, would say, like, well, I let them go nine times before I got serious. Because you wanted to seem merciful, even though you weren't. You know, neoliberal, what you call the Rockefeller ideal, was really started in Mesopotamia. <laughs> but the pharaoh, you know, was was a predator. And in fact, in the pyramid text, he's actually dep- depicted as eating not only human souls to power himself up, but gods. Is that, you know, he was just shoving his mouth, you know, he eats the ghosts of his mother and father, he eats the ghosts of his people, he eats the other gods, butchers them up, and cooks them in a cal- cauldron, you know, all sorts of bizarre, nightmarish stuff. Um, and I-, I can go into that later because it sort of goes back into what I'd call sort of a dark Gnosticism, but we also know that like, at least from uh, John Romer's book, that the Pharaoh, you know, with his smiting mace iconography might've actually been originally the chief human sacrificer of various enemies of the state. And we know this, or at least we think this because of not only the iconography, but the fact is that we found like at Hyrcanopolis right before the Pharaonic period, a bunch of smashed skeletons, all of them Egyptian, you know, the skulls are just smashed open and they're positioned in a way that their brains and their blood would drain into a basin, presumably for some kind of underworld God to drink up the lovely remnants. And keep in mind, these would have been Egyptians. These wouldn't have been, you know, Maybe they were criminals, maybe not, but this still was very much not the rule war chief of human sacrificer. All right, can you get a bit into the whole notion of uh, Mott or this whole concept of justice? This is a notion that Kenneth Grant and Michael Aquino and various other cult groups uh, he collaborated, or Grant, I should say, collaborated with in Lovecraftian rituals, most notably the OIO's uh, Bakeball. We're obsessed with the turn of the age of math. Obviously, this is uh, Grant fitting the concept into weird fiction and such. So how did the Egyptians perceive it? Well, Ma'at was really just the status quo. It was less of a way of saying justice until I think around the New Kingdom and more just a way of saying efficiency. For example, it's relatively clear that I think until the Middle Kingdom, you know, didn't really, didn't have law codes. It was just whatever the Pharaoh felt like. And that, you know, so whatever the Pharaoh really did was not as long as the Nile kept flowing. Of course, I mean, later it became this idea of like, you know, truth and justice, but it was a very sort of exclusive truth and justice. I mean, for example, the continual trampling of foreigners, sometimes the underclasses was considered ma'at. And in fact, I think a lot of the group of people who were sort of referred to as commoners in the literature who referred themselves as distressed commoners were actually just low-lying nobles. And so there's that. And so, I mean, you have trampling foreigners ma'at, you have, um, you know, the 
the subjugation of the peasantry and the other groups of people in those, uh, you know, scribal texts where they're talking about how great it is to be a scribe is also not. Um, anything the Pharaoh says goes Ma'at, which I think I said before. Um, and then there's also the idea of the Judgment Hall, which is interesting because if you read the questions in the Judgment Hall, which, you know, it's about the feather of Ma'at. It's about, you know, do you have enough Ma'at to get there? And it's like, if you read the questions, they're fucking impossible. Like, no human could do this. No human has never made anybody cry. That's an actual, like, question. These aren't things like, have you ever killed anyone? Or, you know, it's literally just like, have you made someone cry? And so what that was basically a way for the priest to essentially, you know, say, you can't get to heaven unless you buy our products. And that's why we have all those coffin spells. Because the average deceased Egyptian would get eaten by their gods because they weren't morally blameless in a similar way to original sin. Though I guess it'd be more inevitable sin in this case. Now, this is absolutely fascinating to me. I've just uh, finished reviewing Michael Aquino's whole mind war uh, concept that he outlined in three books. And um, it, it's really interesting, some of the things that he advocated. Among others um, was a recreation of uh, the Army Special Forces, uh, which essentially consists of three branches. Uh, two of which are fairly well known and one of which has never been talked about before. So the first would be the actual special forces themselves, along with Delta Force and that kind of thing. This is, you know, your whole paramilitary branch. And the other part are the PSYOP, uh, or Psychological Warfare Branch, which uh, actually is considered a part of, of uh, special operations forces and not intelligence, as is commonly assumed. And the final is a very enigmatic branch known as the Civil Affairs Branch. This is very rarely talked about because it's essentially the United States' political cadre. It consists a lot of times of uh, retired special operations forces who in theory are engaged in hearts and minds activities, though frequently they are enlisted in um, a lot of other, you know, kind of PSYOP type things. So anyway, <clears throat> Aquino wanted to reorient all of this towards his whole concept of mind war. Essentially, you know, the PSYOP would become the mind war specialists, the paramilitary troops would still more or less do the same thing, though they would keep their, you know, weapons concealed or some such shit. Um, but the civil affairs one, he had a really ambitious concept of, and he wanted to recreate it as what he referred to as a parapolitical branch. Now, his whole concept of this parapolitical branch was based on this concept of Mott. So from the first Mind War book, he writes, quote, the most stable, civilized, and pleasant societies of antiquity, such as Egypt, Crete, and Hellenistic Greece, share a surprisingly simple yet subsequently forgotten principle, that of the polis defined, united, and energized by a common moral principle. In Egypt, this was the Kazakh principle of Neder, god slash goddess of Mat, usually simplified as justice. 
but more precisely extending to virtue, fairness, rectitude, and all personal community affairs, there was no concept of individual rights against the government because the government was viewed as a system ordered by the natura, that would be the gods of ancient Egypt, the thought forms in Aquino's system. Similarly, uh, each Egyptian, whether high or low born, participated in this system. Crime and corruption were, of course, possible, but inadvisable because of the conviction that vice would be punished severely after earthly death. So anyway, he continues as to how this would be applied in the modern era. Construction of a morally based polis first requires the discarding of the ideological remnants of the social contract error. As Dr. Reg Haven Ivier observes, we are especially linked to the complacent 19th century and its tragic aftermath. Words became infected with ideologies of political movements on behalf of classes, elites, ruling classes, empires, and nations. And as a result, we have inherited a welter of isms, liberalism, socialism, communism, fascism, and their prolific bastard Trojans and Syria. All right, so continuing on with the keynote, the solution to this dilemma continues, Javier, is parapolitics. Parapolitics signifies the imaginative application of seminal ideals validating political theory and practice. The elaboration of fundamental principles into paradigms of relationships among persons and between civil means and human ends. The quest for political understanding and action based upon expanding self-awareness and ever-receding perspective ideals rooted in the ethics, metaphysics, and psychology of self-transcendence. This prescription is less formidable than it reads at first glance. Ordinary political interactions can be analytically dissected into six motivational expressions, perfectibility, reason, welfare, stability, power, and self-preservation, which would theoretically be the basis of the policy. So anyway, to close out here, uh, continuing on, this is not where the political, parapolitical bureau's work stops. However, it is not just to secure tenuous unitary instability, but rather to continue into identification and separation of a positive, inherently reinforcing moral community, a true polis. Parapolitics is the twin product of vision and virtue, the former being the benevolent and creative ideals which the stabilized environment makes possible, while the latter reflects the nurturing, careful pragmatism of Machiavelli. Neither means nor ends can be used to excuse the other. Parapolitics rather demands their identity. So this is just really amazing. Essentially, Michael Aquino wanted to reorient the United States' political warfare uh, bureau towards recreating this concept of the polis derived from this Egyptian notion of Mont that you've just been describing for us. How do you feel about that? Um, it's a little frightening. It's, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's um, uh, makes a lot more sense. The war in the Middle East got to get those vile Asiatic slaves. <laughs> yes, that was what, what they called them. But I mean, that that does seem about right. And you know, I mean, the Pharaoh didn't create order, but it's also true that like. The Pharaoh, and this is, I, I don't agree much with Joseph Campbell much at all with anything. I think he's started the long condition. I mean, the long uh, school of misunderstanding you. But it's also true that, like, you know, um, even the monarchs lived in total fucking fear of the Pharaoh. Because he can and would, you know, just randomly kill anyone. 
Well, I mean, this is one of the reasons why, you know, I mean, I think this topic is so crucial because, I mean, Aquino was involved in the civil affairs stuff, you know, both throughout his biography, pretty much up to the time that he died. I mean, he had a lot of supporters still in the modern day special operations forces. And I mean, I think that, you know, when you look at something like January 6th or something like that, you really see a lot of the concepts that he's outlining there playing out and um you know, again, this is one of the reasons why I was very excited to do this show, because if this is being brought into the Army Special Forces or maybe even more broadly into uh, the Joint Special Operations Command or something, I mean, it's something that, you know, we should be very nervous about. But I mean, frankly, this just seems to be in keeping with this, this bizarre kind of warrior elite that they seem to be trying to crafting and i mean i know this sounds out there but i mean good lord i've done a couple of shows on just all of the strange deaths that have been happening at you know fort bragg over the last couple of years i mean people being beheaded just you know well fun fact about beheading sorry to interrupt you for oh, go for it go for it is that that was basically the worst fear of any egyptian is to be beheaded because that took away you know your rights in the underworld Osiris, um, you know, at least according to Budge, and Budge might be wrong because Budge was like over 100 years ago, just a little over, maybe 105, said that, you know, all of Osiris' slaves were headless because they didn't have will anymore. That was sort of the way of destroying the body. That was the way of saying, you know, no afterlife for you, or at least no afterlife where you're not in constant suffering. But it was also seen as a sort of a way to liberate the energies and then the pharaoh to eat them. I think that's a lot of something that people don't really know about is that eating was a very big part of the mechanics of ancient Egyptian magic. In fact, there's a book by about that, which talks about it and that, you know, to keep his powers, he essentially would have to feast on the yeah. blood of just to like interject, like the, the whole rite of like, what is it, the bornless or the headless one was supposed to have come from ancient Egypt, right? Maybe. Or at least the Gnostic guy kind of put. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's really, I love late antique paganism and late antique Gnosticism, but it's also very, very hard to parse out exactly where everything came from. You know, it could also be a pun on the one who was not born. It could be something else is that, you know, I mean, if there are decapitations going on in Fort Bragg, and that would very much be in ways in which, you know, the pharaoh would get his nummies and get more power. Well, that's, um, that's, that's not a very comforting thought, but, um, yeah, it seems to be about in keeping with some of the stuff that's going on now with, um, oh, my goodness, some of our elite forces. If, if the world isn't already insane, it's enough as it is. All right, so you describe Egypt as the world's first surveillance state. So what are that? Well, essentially, it was just that, you know, there really, at least in Greece, at least until I think the Hellenistic era, there wasn't really an intelligence branch, if that makes sense. There was a police force, but it was usually just like, you know, all right, fuckers, you're out there making trouble or we want your money, or we want your taxes, or, you know, you're making civil unrest, and we're going to jail you because you're a noxious motherfucker. But you didn't have thought crimes. That wasn't a thing that happened. But in Egypt, because the idea of, you know, 
the word is creation and, you know, writing is creation was such a big thing that every single thought was thought to affect reality in some way. And so even just, you know, privately saying, you know, the Pharaoh's a real asshole. Like your friends was seen as a threat. So there would be people probably doing that. I mean, we actually have stuff from the Reign of Akhenaten from the Amarna letters that does basically talk about the special art ops force, you know, just rounding up any of the people who still worship Amun in secret. Which is, you know, insane. It's sort of the first council of un-American activities. Yeah, I mean, it's just really fascinating, again, how this kind of plays into things that are going on in modern times now. Um, all right, so uh, do you want to get in a bit more how that played out? Um, you've described it as like xenophobia on steroids, uh, which seems to be a bit quaint. I mean, it, it is a bit quaint. It is, you know, but it, it's true, is that, you know, there was this idea of the Egyptian, specifically the red-skinned Egyptian, as, um, you know, uh, the ideal human. You know, the one who's, or at least the Redskin noble addiction, who's the ideal human. You know, they were the first people to really invent racial caricatures. If you look at the way that you're Nubians, despite probably having a lot of black admixture themselves, they look at the racial caricatures. If you look at the way they sculpted, um, you know, Semites and Libyans, they look, wow, you know, the Nazis could have made these. <laughs> Just a lot more stiff and sort of aesthetic looking. I mean, every single, shit, I lost my train of thought, but I mean, there is this idea of the Egyptian, especially the noble Egyptian as sort of the image of God. And there's actually a, you know, when some Nubians would get incorporated in the government in their tombs, they would have themselves painted as redskin Egyptians. But in the tombs of their non uh, their non Nubian superiors, they'd be painted as Nubians to show them as subservient. Even in the New Kingdom, they would refuse to refer to the king of the Hittite Empire, the people who beat them as multiple times, as a king. <laughs> or you know, like say, hey, hey, you ask for my daughters all the time. How about you send one of your daughters up to the you know the king of I think Babylon. I don't remember if it was the Kassite or the Sea Lion Dynasty. It's like this horrible offense. I remember, you know, there's this guy uh, that we're talking about. It's like, you know, well, obviously these Kassite upstarts, you know, just didn't understand. They thought themselves better than they were. That's the thing I, to go off topic, I noticed about a lot of Egyptologists is that they seem to sort of romanticize Egypt more than any other discipline I have ever seen. Like, you know, I was uh, on the dig I was at. This summer, there's this lovely woman, absolutely lovely, you know, one of the nicest people, but I remember, you know, talking to her about Egypt and talking about, you know, like slavery and that stuff. She's like, no, 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 it was great. It was great. They weren't xenophobic. They weren't any of that stuff, despite, you know, evidence to the contrary, that they absolutely were. And you don't really see that in other disciplines. Like, you know, I remember, if you ask an Assyriologist about, like, you know, the substitute king ritual, or like, you know, just, or, you know, about the sacrifices to Moloch or 
Carthage, they might sort of joke about it, but they do understand that that was fucked up. They do understand that what the Assyrians did, you know, like, all right, time to torture people extra hard because to make sure they know they're afraid is fucked up. But they don't deny it. That's something that sort of you only really see with Egyptologists. Yeah, no, I mean, it is fascinating. I mean, you know, I've seen some of that uh, when I was uh, kind of researching, um, gosh, you know, the whole Stargate stuff and things like that uh, related to Adrena Puharic and some of his uh, successors with the Nine. And it's another one of these things, too, where there's also a lot of infestation from the New Age community into Egyptologists, I think, to the extent that a lot of people don't realize as well. But I mean, yeah, it is a very... Uh, sus community that nobody really talks about a lot and of course I mean the Egyptian government too has such a vested interest in promoting a you know, particular uh, image of it as well so very I mean go ahead sorry I you know I was raised in a household my family was constantly interrupting each other but I mean I think there's a lot of overlap between some of the new age at least the softer side of the far right like you know I mean you know inner traditions you know, if you ever go to your local New Age cult bookstore or just the metaphysics section of, you know, your uh, your Barnes & Noble, you'll see inner tradition. It has like a little cute little jack a lot. I mean, it, it posts all kinds of nice, probably nonsensical stuff about, you know, crystal healing virgin birth waves. But then, you know, you look at their catalog and they're also selling uh, books by Evola. And I think that, you know, people don't really think about that. Say, wait, wait, wait a minute. Yeah. I, do you mean inner traditions, actually? Yeah, inner traditions. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I mean, that's like what I'm saying. They're one of the uh, major yeah, groups that really uh, kind of funded the revival of interest in traditionalism by republishing a lot of these works in English and so forth. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and this is, again, a topic a lot of people don't really talk very much about. Uh, I had the great Benjamin Tietelbaum on here to kind of go over some of the stuff with Argos and, you know, again, I mean, this, you know, creates some the weird overlap. I mean, they, uh, some of the people involved with that ended up with a private uh, intelligence company called Jellyfish, which had like veterans from Blackwater and what have you. Again, you know, I mean, I know this kind of seems like an arcane subject, but I mean, in you know, real life right now, you're seeing a lot of just strange overlap between this peculiar brand of occultism, you know, Egyptology and so forth. And, you know, a lot of these um, private intelligence special operators and all this other kind of stuff, it's, it's very strange, but I mean, it's it's thing. <laughs> I mean, Lynn Picknett, who I love Lynn Picknett, I, I think she also falls trapped to the romanticizing of Egypt, but she's a very good scholar. And she talks about like the evangelical warmongers being like, you know, super duper excited about opening uh, uh, the tomb of Osiris in the Stargate conspiracy, supposedly. That is definitely there. And I mean, you know, even nine do sort of resemble the Egyptian gods in that they are medium ship things. They are channeled spirits. You know, they, they go into the person and then they're like, hey, uh, you know, I'm not saying that Black people are less human. I'm just saying we didn't make them. They're talking in the voice of George Lucas for some reason, but 
Well, those were back in the good old days when all we had to worry about was like Al Gore assuming the presidency in 2000 and uh, ushering the uh, the way in for the nine rather than uh, World War III breaking out in the Ukraine or Taiwan or something like that. Well, yeah, but I mean, these things clearly, if you look at, if you assume that pharaonic kingship was, you know, let's just say, you know, from a Fortean standpoint, these things are real thought forms. And, you know, there is this idea that the Egyptians might have known that, that they were at least powered reciprocally, which I think was an idea that a lot of people miss, is that, you know, if you read, like, the Mesopotamian stuff, if you read the Greek stuff, to a lesser extent, you know, if you read the Hittite stuff, you know, the gods need food. You know, one of the reasons that Telepinu comes back, Telepinu was a Hittite fertility god, is because he's like, hey, you haven't had anything to drink in a while. You know, it's bad. <laughs> and so, you know, there was this idea of, you know, divine maintenance, which you can find in anything. But what's interesting is that in Egypt, part of the god's power structure was through the axe or the who uh, I have such a hard time pronouncing it. It's such a weird language, you know, of dead people, is that they were thought to sort of be, in some respect, at least partially comprised of agglomerations of their dead worshippers and priests. And so, I mean, if you're going to say, like, okay, these things are real, then what do they want? Well, if Egypt was a society they set up, well, then they clearly want, you know, an authoritative power structure. Um, they want at least an ideology that would let itself for constant, for the most part, incursionary wars. They don't really want anything that would be labeled either capitalism or communism, at least not in a meaningful way. And if you look at what the nine are saying, that, that does sound quite in character, just, you know, like modernized, no, repackaged. It's essentially what Aquino is kind of saying too, you know, they don't want any isms, you know, they don't want socialism or communism or fascism or any kind of, uh, you know, they just want this universal concept of justice coming from the gods, basically, or the, the thought forms, I guess, rather. Yeah, and you, you can't question them. I mean, if you ever read a, I mean, this is where I'm probably going to sound like an insane, you know, um, but completely insane because of course I sound insane because I am insane. And to get off topic is that I, I mean that was sort of how Egypt kept itself functioning. Is that the pharaoh was a god? You know, people would see him in these big spectacles, but they couldn't get too close. It, it wasn't just like a national security thing; they literally couldn't hear his voice. You know, they'd have him on this bar decked out so much finery that he didn't even look new. And so at least the majority of the population, you know, they would use psyops to say, this is God's will. You can't question the gods. And that's very good for the people who say they speak for the gods. Or especially, I am possessed by the gods. Especially in the world where there's no contract. Which is, um, once again, you know. And that's what they want to get away, do away with, is the social contract. <laughs> no, I mean, but that's interesting because that's, you know, a lot of the times, at least, that was in other cultures how gods and humans interacted. 
especially in, you know, uh, you know, not all of Greek tradition, but some of Greek tradition is that there was a contract. There wasn't any understanding that at least even as a disadvantaged party, humans could fundamentally barter with the gods. You actually have this in the Hebrew Bible. You know, you have it in um, Greek mythology, you have it in Mesopotamian mythology, where, you know, the god Era is forced to not destroy everything because you copied a tablet and he has to hold up his end of the bargain. You know, there's all that idea. And so this idea that we don't want a social contact, that essentially just means that, you know, might makes right, but only when I do it, which is sort of the, the main idea of fascism. Yeah, it's uh, definitely a disturbing prospect. So you, you have anything else, Ted? No, no, I mean, that, that's it. You can turn the conversation in any way you want. Okay, okay. So uh, you kind of arrived at this concept then as Pharaoh as the ultimate Sith Lord. Uh, do you have anything else to like add to that? I mean, it, it is interesting because when we talked about the idea that his power sort of required him to, you know, kill people, kill people who were criminals or rebels. And keep in mind that in, in the ancient Egyptian ideal world, the Pharaoh owned everything. So people who were fighting back against the invasion were enemies, they were rebels. They were seen as going against national order and letting themselves be crushed by the pharaohs. Everything, every aberration from the foreigner or the peasant trapped on their foot was a rebel, even if they were thousands of miles away from Egypt. And so, you know, that was probably done because as the chief executioner who got their powers essentially through absorbing the released vitality of executed people, they're like, well, if we run out of executed people, <laughs> I don't work. And then the Nile doesn't work and then we're all dead. And I mean, there's also this idea that like, you know, George O'Keefe in this wonderful book on the social theory of magic, so enlightening says that, you know, he wonders if maybe the pharaohs weren't originally priest case, they were magician cased who sort of came in and hijacked the society. And there's also just this idea that like, if you read the canon of who's the big pharaoh, He's one of the guys who made one of the smaller pyramids. But and please, if I am being unclear, interrupt me, and I will explain. Please, because I, I want people to hear this, not just think, "What's this dumbass jabbering on about?" Um. Oh no, you're doing good, man. You're doing very good. Okay, is that you know in the pyramid texts, one of the ideas was that the pharaoh would you know, eat, not only eat souls of the dead, but we talked about that, but he would sort of become the new demiurge. That he would, you know, force the universe that he could become his new, the new God. You know, and in fact, I mean, there's this idea that, you know, like the Pharaoh himself was the one who provided the life force of human that he could rescind it, which is Another sort of, I don't mean that in like an abstract way, like, oh, I provide the order to do it. It's literally like, no, your soul and the soul of everyone on the planet belongs to me. 
And so what he would do essentially is that the goal, at least until I think the middle kingdom, maybe like even the new kingdom was to um, become God, destroy the universe and remake it as he was the one on top. And there's even sort of like, you know, this suspicion, at least in the old kingdom towards Osiris, who was literally the divinized collection. And they're talking about like, you know, yeah, he may rule as tyrant over the other dead, but he can't get me. Which is very sort of a Sith idea, at least if we're going by Star Wars. You know, I mean, of course, it's a stupid capitalistic metaphor, but I think it helps, you know, to really get why that is. And in fact, I mean, if you read the original Legends books, um, the, the Sith, who were, you know, a species, there was an actual Sith species, or red dudes with tentacle beards. Their aesthetics were Egyptian. You know, they, the Sith kings dressed sort of like bootleg pharaohs, all that stuff, which is, you know, may or may not be coloring my ideas, but there is this idea that it was all essentially about the pharaoh's ego. It was about the pharaoh's ego. It was about him getting powers, but the fact that, you know, he could get unlimited power, that he would take what he wanted and consume what he wanted, and that this was the natural order of things because it was. All, and in later times, this would be based on an idea of revenge for a slaughtered god, which, you know, in this case, Osiris, but you could also say, you know, let's just say Jesus or David Koresh or even like, you know, Nazi Germany is like, oh, this, this, you know, this guy was killed by the horrible, horrible world. Now I am taking revenge on the world by proxy. Well, it's fascinating to me because, I mean, it seems like uh, the Egyptian priesthood, from the way you're describing it, are the ones who sort of came up with this, you know, this kind of notion that I discussed with uh, Peter Mark Adams about his great book, uh, The Game of uh, Saturn, about the Sulapusca Terra. And essentially, it seems to be uh, describing a process in which uh, the participant would uh, draw the demiurge down into them. Uh, which was usually personified as Saturn, another kind of stand-in for Set. And um, in Adam's contention, this kind of came out of Hellenism or Neoplatonism that had been uh, brought over from the Byzantine Empire, so-called, or Eastern Roman, as they saw themselves. So this kind of seems to jive. I mean, it almost seems like in the early years, the Egyptians were who uh, discovered this process, and Pharaoh sort of had this monopoly on... Um, you know, drawing down this kind of Saturnine force. And then gradually the process was sort of uh, filtered into Neoplatonism through this kind of process of theurgy and so forth. And then kind of gradually continued uh, on into the Middle Ages and so forth. I mean, probably in the Eastern Roman Empire and some other groups and so forth. Uh, at least that's, you know, kind of like theory I'm working on with this. But I mean, it's it's a fascinating notion. I mean, it is. I mean, of course, the pharaoh was supposed to be the dominant party in this one, not the demiurgic entity. And that, you know, what's really interesting is that um, Horus, a lot of people say, oh, Horus is the sun. Horus is the sun. And that he was the sun, but he was also a lot of other things, specifically Venus, the morning star. Ah, oh, which is equivalent with Lucifer as well. Yeah, I mean, it's even crazier, actually, because the, the god uh, who uh, influenced 
Lucifer, who you know became that in the Canaanite pantheon, is was one named Horanu, and Horanu was, you know, the fallen angel who tried to take the throne of Baal, who was, and was cast down for his rebellion and his attempts to destroy the world to remake it in his own image. In fact, he's even the enemy of, at least according to Corporal in his book, Adam, even the devil of, you know, El and Baal and Dagon, maybe the god that would eventually become Yahweh's champion, um, who was called Adamu. And he would appear in the form of a falcon-headed serpent. And then there's the fact that, you know, like, uh, you know, with Samael and all the other stuff is that, you know, Azazel, Azazel, who is, you know, the big, big guy in Jewish demonology, he's not really the devil devil because there is no devil devil. And he's also there in the form of Iblis in, a, you know, uh, Islamic demonology is that he is called the strong one who, you know, is in charge of eating the sinners. And that's something that Horus also does there. In fact, if you want to read that uh, paper that talks about that, look up Nourishment of Azazel by uh, Andre Orlov. He's a great guy, great scholar. He's a lot of work on Turinok. I mean, even in like, you know, the Canaanite period, we have this idea of like, you know, Horus and Osiris were the bad guys. Like, you know, one of the epithets of uh, Semael was the blind one, you know, and that was the god of Mars, the god Era, Nurgle, Destruction, Haran, you know, the blind one with his dogs, and that was could also be construed as Horus. In Gnosticism, though, that's also like likened to the Demiurge that wrote. You know, I mean, literally, the Demiurge is literally in a, uh, one of the Archons is called Horeos in mm-hmm. that. But I mean, even like if you look at the uh, uh, in comparison to other Near Eastern cultures, and to be fair, you can make the same thing with the treatment of devas and asuras in uh, Zoroastrianism and um, you know Hinduism, is it almost looks like Egyptian paganism, but from the other perspective. Uh, are you familiar at all with like the ball cycle? Uh, no, I'm not. Okay, so. The main god of the Canaanites, or at least the most popular one during the late Bronze, the Middle Bronze Age, was this guy named Balhadad. He was, you know, your standard Semitic dying and rising storm god. And, you know, he goes out and he clobbers the ocean, you know, which is causing problems. It's this thing called the Yamu, which would later be coincided with the Leviathan. And then he, uh, you know, goes there, makes his house, this is GF, Anat, and he's like, all right, this is good. And then the god of death shows up. And then the god of death, you know, does something. He tricks him or some way. And then he eats him. And then for penance, for doing that to Baal, who is, you know, the rain god, the storm god, Set, um, Mat or Matu is chopped into pieces and scattered across the world before getting his son, Haranu, to, uh, you know, avenge him, his firstborn son. 
I mean, you can even make the same case that this is uh, exactly what you have with, uh, if you want to get weirder and less connected with the Enuma Elish, where you have, you know, Abzu, who is a water god. And Abzu is killed by, uh, Abzu is either killed by Anki or Marduk or Enlil. You know, Anki being a trickster and Marduk being a storm god. And then, you know, Tiamat, who would be in the role of Isis, takes part of Abzu's dead body. Abzu, you know, these are giant chaos monsters. And uh, creates a son named Kingu. And we know that Kingu, well, we're not really sure what kind of bird had bird symbolism who would try and avenge himself on this. All of them, you know, Matu, Hranu, Kingu, Tiamat were considered in many ways enemies of mankind. And that, you know, I mean, for the Egyptians, that wouldn't have been far off because all of mankind was created by the god of evil, with the exception of the Egyptians. <sighs> Which is just creepy. <sighs> Can we go, like, let's go back to uh, Jewish mythology here. I know one of the books that you had recommended that I had a chance to read was one called Dark Mirrors, Azazel and Santiel, an early Jewish uh, demiology, which I found to be quite fascinating. Of course, it gets a lot into the book of Anak, uh, which I'm sure a lot of the listeners are familiar with. And Anak, again, kind of <clears throat> seems to be uh, describing this whole process of ascension and descension. Uh, that we've been kind of like outlining here and of course also again it also plays into the whole planetary thing which in a lot of traditions is also a factor uh, but can you give us sort of a <clears throat> rundown how azazel and centilio and all this kind of plays into the anakian cycle oh totally i mean you know there's a lot of different stuff you know about centennial and azazel and which one is which i mean we think for example that azazel wasn't originally just Hebrew. It wasn't like, oh, you know, they stole it. It's just more that it was a pan-Semitic idea, or at least it was a pan-Levantine idea. You know, there's um, stuff from the city of Ebla, or maybe it was, I think it's Ebla, where they talk about something that looks a lot like Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur, where they cast out the strong one. And if, you know, you know any Hebrew, Azazel means strength of God. You know, and so we're not really sure, you know, if Azazel was really, how much of this was older, how much was just original Hebrew. So Taniel, we know for a fact, is, or at least the idea of a Satan as an adversary is, we know that is. They're basically, you know, they were the rebel angels um, who were tempted to go down and, you know, to sleep with mortal women who they taught stuff. And then they birthed giant sort of demigod or young, you know, called the Nephilim or the Fallen Ones. And I mean, you know, a lot of people when they think of giants, they're like, oh, you know, really big guys, fee-fi-fo-fum. But that's very much a Northern European idea. And please tell me if I'm getting off topic. Oh, no, you're fine. Continue, please. Okay, yeah. Um, is that, you know, that's, that's a very Northern European idea. And I'm not saying that's bad. In fact, some of my favorite giant stories are from Northern Europe, specifically the Norse ones, you know, with Loki and Thor fucking around with them because they're stupid, but 
you know, at least in both Southern Indo-European cultures, like the Hittites and the Greeks, and definitely in the Levant, giant just meant large thing. Many of them, while intelligent, were barely human. You know, like in Greek uh, iconography, gigantes doesn't even mean big. It just it just means earthborn. You know, gignomai Gaia. And, you know, they're depicted with snake legs, and you know, in the Book of Giants, in both the Manichaean and the Qumran versions, are depicted with animal traits. You know, so they're almost like um, um, chimerians. Is that how it's pronounced? Chimer Chimera, chimeras. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you yeah, know, the, the, these things are chimeras, but they're depicted as you know. Oh, okay, that's interesting. And I mean, that's sort of a standard pan-Semitic idea on that point, you know. And probably also, not just pan-Semitic, it was a pan-Mediterranean idea. Whether this idea came first from, you know, the onus of this was on the Indo-European tribes coming in, specifically the Anatolian ones, or it was on the Semites, or it was on whoever the hell the Sumerians were. You know, it really doesn't matter. It was a pan, you know, Near Eastern idea that, you know, in the old order, there was a race of once biological giant monsters, and then those monsters died in a flood or something. And then, you know, their spirits raise up and cause trouble for the living. And I mean, we even have that, like, you know, in some of the descriptions of the Titans and the Orthic stuff. Like, for example, there is a literal proto-human monster, a, a bull man, a minotaur, mentioned in some of the Ugaritic texts called, you know, Titanic. And, you know, Og, who's also, you know, King Og, the underworld god, or Og Gigagis in Greek. And, you know, these are like dead human precursors who are these weird giant monsters that are still in some ways hostile from living humans. I mean, even the Titans and like the Orphic stuff are depicted not as like, you know, these precursors, but the sons of the precursors who are, you know, made to attack the gods. Like in the Orphic stuff, they're talked about, you know, like rebelling against Zeus. They're talked about as, you know, living underground because they were killed, you know, of being of lesser stature than the god, but higher than humans about serving Erebos and other forces. And it's very different than like, you know, the story given by Hesiod, which is for the most part taken from the Hittite song of the lease where, you know, the testicle cutting off and stuff. All right, so one last question about the Jewish mysticism here. So how, all, how does all of this play into the Zohar, which was basically like the beginning of uh, Kabbalahism? Well, I mean, the thing about the Zohar and Kabbalah in general is that it's, a lot of people, at least from Gershom Shalom in the 1960s, said that it was invented whole cloth. But if you actually look at what they're saying nowadays, while it was the first formal systemization, that's what it was. It was the systemization of older ideas. You know, you have stuff like the Merkaba literature, and you have stuff like the Shir Kama, which describes the body of God. And you have all sorts of really weird, sometimes verging on emanationist polytheistic texts, you know, coming from people who were essentially orthodox rabbis. You look up Rabbi Ishmael, there's literally, you know, there is a pantheon of 
at least beings that in Hinduism will be construed as gods. Each of them have the holy divine name stapled onto their name as they represent him. And so, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, you know, even the goat thing, I think is sort of newer though. Then again, you also have the idea at least, you know, from uh, uh, the uh, Hellenistic times that the Pharaoh, you know, who in the middle kingdom was associated with Amun to the new kingdom to the point where, you know, Amun, you know, would literally have the Pharaoh's face in statuary was associated with Pan, you know, the goat dude. So, I mean, that's entirely possible that, you know, over time, things shifted. All right, so, but, I mean, oh, go ahead, go ahead. But, I mean, the Zohar itself is, it is very interesting. It's also not really one thing. There's also tons of supplementary material, a lot of which do go back to Enoch. And a lot of Enoch stuff does actually go back to Mesopotamia, or even ironically enough, Egyptian traditions about Thoth. Like you have, you know, lots of stories about humans who go back, who go into heaven, and then they bring knowledge, uh, exorcism, and, you know, stuff to the humans, and then they go back up. That's sort of, you know, that's a standard Mesopotamian motif. You know, there's Adapa, there's Lugobanda, there's um, even some ideas of like, you know, the Jesus man and Asclepios, but that is like a stock motif, you know, of the shaman who was so good at being a shaman that they became a god. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating concept. I mean, you know, I think it's kind of like in keeping with this like ongoing tradition of theurgy, um, which again is interesting, the whole concept of the Egyptian Book of the Dead. And I mean, all this other stuff we've been discussing here. Um, yeah, you can see sort of the antiquity of a lot of these traditions. And I mean, it's kind of going through a lot of different transformations over the years. Uh, I suppose even Mormonism in a sense is kind of like a modern manifestation of some of these kind of practices, which is ironic, I suppose, but uh, with essentially American take on it nonetheless. Uh, all right, so um, given the colossal resurgence of interest in Egyptian spirituality in the last few decades in the West and some of the forms it has taken, where could it potentially go from here? Give us uh, a best and worst case scenario, Austinese. Uh, sure. I mean, you know, um, best case scenario, you know, pantheism, nature worship, you know, that kind of nice stuff. You know, like, oh, let's, let's thank the Earth Mother for our food. You know, just like we keep misunderstanding it and romanticizing it, putting it through sort of a a Gerald Gardner type of framework. <laughs> you know, and it's like, okay, this is fine. This is fine. You know, oh, oh, Osiris was the first Jesus, and he said to love each other. Um, you know, the worst case scenario is that probably another form, a much worse form of Christo-fascism. You know, one where it's like mankind is once again cattle for the gods, the king of the world. I mean, this is sort of an idea that's in a lot of right-wing stuff, you know, 
sometimes in between, you know, like Ferdinand and Isabella or, or in some of the Spanish people, you know, that's what really Dee wanted Elizabeth to be, you know, like the final ruling regent in the world. And I think that would be that kind of case where it would essentially be a crusade constantly. You know, an oligarchical horrible crusade where, you know, I'm not really saying human sacrifice because it would be more done through the criminal justice system where it would be, you know, very draconian, very much that. Just sort of imagine the worst bits of Roman emperor worship mixed with the worst bits of medieval Catholic church. That's really all I can say. That's not a pleasant thought. What <laughs> um, was a bonus here? Uh, I know like a lot of people who are joining us from Penny Royal, when you mentioned Pan, their probably interest was perked. Uh, could you elaborate a bit on that Pan's connections to some of this stuff? Oh, totally. I mean, you know, Pan was sort of uh, the main god of a lot of the Platonists, at least in late antiquity. You know, he was the one who was seen as spinning the cosmos around, sort of as pun in his name. We don't really know where his name came from, but Pan, the horny goat guy who just wanted to hang out in the woods, when the Greeks came there, you know, I mean, in some ways they associated Zeus with Amun, but they also associated Amun with Pan and Ptah and the other goat-headed creator gods of, you know, Egypt, because, you know, if you look at like Khnum and Ptah and Amun, they all have goat heads or ram heads. And I don't really think that the Egyptians distinguish between the two of them that much. They're both Caprons. Interesting. All right, as another bonus here, how does this sort of play into grand system with like the Lovecraftian gods and so forth, which he kind of like crafted onto some of this Egyptian stuff? Do you have like a take on that? Uh, yeah, I do actually. I mean, I am I'm relatively familiar with France, that it's hard sometimes to even know where Grant is going or how he feels about things. Because like at some point in time, he's saying, well, this is such a liberating tradition that other times he's going like, you know, this is the blood feast of horror, which is, you know, okay, I'm not really sure what you're trying to sell me on. Maybe that's just kind of dumbass. But there is this idea that they exist outside the circle of time, that these entities are in some ways predatory, and there is evidence for that, you know, that these entities were thought of as eating human souls, you know, seeing as sort of a form of livestock. And that they came from, you know, outside bounds of reality, sort of like, you know, in the, the book Amenhotep III, it was actually described that the heart or the ib of a god would, you know, have to go back into the outer void of chaos or moon to refresh itself and then come back into the, you know, its ghost-made body. I mean, even in like some of the later texts, um, there's this thing called the nut, the net of Shu, which I really want to get to which would essentially be where Horus would catch souls and then feed them to something, which may have been assimilated to dead Pharaoh, which is simply called the Black Ram. And we know this, that, you know, this wasn't just like, oh, you know, it's, it's part of the, you know, 
the cycle of life. You're being taken in by Kali and you know, birthed again. This is like, no, if you read the coffin texts, you know, from the New Kingdom nobility, they really did not want to be caught in Horus's net and then fed to the sun god. But you also have, you know, stuff where the pharaoh is catching souls and feeding it to this entity, this sort of black sun or the black ram, who, if not sated, will destroy the universe. Which I think is pretty Lovecraftian. But there's also, you know, the idea of Set as the adversary, which I think is, you know, there's this line that says, you know, uh, you know, the church wouldn't have gotten anywhere without the devil. I think that's sort of a big part of Egypt by having the adversary god who, you know, occasionally was go between, you know, evil embodied to the divine slave. <laughs> You know, who was bad, but had been beaten around so he could, you know, take care of his own people. It's also very important. And I think that, you know, I mean, it, in a way that's a little more obvious, you know, you have the phrase, you know, Milton thought he was of God's party, but he really thought he was actually the devil's party. I think you could say the same with a lot of people who talk about Seth. Or the other way around. Well, it's also sort of interesting how a lot of this has been rebranded and romanticized in the New Age movement with this whole sort of, uh, you know, concept of the cosmic consciousness or cosmic soul or whatever. And upon death, the uh, the soul rejoins it and what have you. And it's um, seen as this glorious process. But I mean, if you really go back to a lot of the earlier texts, it was not. It was basically a total destruction of your soul. Uh, yeah, it's fascinating how this is uh, now seen as a desirable process by many in the uh, West and a lot of other regions. The ultimate, the ultimate goal of that was that, you know, that that thing, whatever it was, would get fed. And to be fair, I think that there's sort of a difference between incorporation into like, you know, a force that was part of you the whole time. Like, for example, Mesopotamian personal gods, which we call demons, were thought of as the highest portion of the self. And so it was less of a, you know, being consumed and more just like a, all right, time to head out of VR chat. It was fun pretending to be Urnamu and a slave girl, but now I'm done with that shit. Which, I mean, you know, Joshua Kutchin talks about. Or, But there's also the idea of, you know, the Egyptian things like, yeah. You know, you will be eaten. And that's good for the people who want to imprint their egos on the things doing the eating. And I mean, there's also, you know, the fact that more often than not, the gods were depicted as hostile in a way that seems less like, you know, like, oh, I am angry and wrathful and more like, you know, predators. And it's not really to say evil, it's to say predators, you know. A tiger isn't evil, but it's still a tiger. He's still just to eat you, you know, and to make more tigers. They're just doing what they need to do to survive, in other words. What do you say? They're just doing what they need to do to survive, in other words. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's, it's actually a really good way of looking at this, especially in the text you read where the pharaoh, you know, threatens the gods into submission, and that was a big thing, you know. I mean, Horus, in one text, literally cuts off his own mother's head. 
And it's like, you know, it, it reminds me a lot of actually the Goetia. Where you can That's do the thing. What do you say? Is that from Japan? No, the Goetia, you know. Paimon. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Sorry, I have a thick California accent, so I probably say things that are just sound wrong. Well, it's like I'm more used to seeing this stuff in the written word. I don't really know how it's pronounced, so. <laughs> no, I mean, I might be saying it wrong, too. I'm a big fan of Justin Sledge, but yeah, it's like, you know, the goetic tradition where, you know, you're like, all right, King Paimon, I'm going to hate you until you teach me grammar. There is that sort of idea. And I mean, you know, even with the non-cosmic gods, you know, the Ennead, they're described as being born of heaven and earth. And that was more often than not, you know, the description of the Watchers, that was the description of Lamash too. That was the description of, you know, um, the Titans, you know, usually the, you know, of a union that was opposed by the universe or, you know, the sky god, and that's usually not something that's there. And, you know, they're semi-mortal like the giants. I mean, you know, they can be killed. They take on host bodies. And so it's, it is entirely possible that the Goetia really did come from Egypt and demonolatry in general. So, you know, I guess I'll give that to, you know, all those edgy groups. <laughs> so, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's pretty obvious, though, that one's like, you know, new and etc are just cosmic principles like you know like the, the really like you know the cosmic gods they, they aren't really they're just sort of doing their thing but the ones that go down on earth are you could make an assumption that these are you know predatory entities yeah it's kind of like why else would they be coming down here in the first place no of course i mean they're coming down here and you know they're literally you know possessing people um they're Waging wars on each other, you know, in ways they're mortal and, you know, they clearly have, you know, Eros and Thanatos. You know, they, they are alien to us. They aren't projections of us like the other god, like, you know, a lot of other gods. They aren't exactly cosmic principles. They're not. And so you get this idea that, you know, like. They're very interested in setting up states, unlike the Greek gods who just sort of want to hang out and get drunk. It's like, yeah, it would make sense that these things are cultivators that want to eat us. Oh, that is a uh, disturbing prospect. <laughs> oh, of course it is. But I mean, that's, that's sort of something you got to learn is that the world is a disturbing prospect. I mean, you know, I think that... A healthy distrust of any god, even the god you whose position you belong to, is you know probably a good thing. You know, like there are plenty of you know Jewish and Muslim texts where they're telling you Yahweh and Allah, you know, sort of rules lawyering him into saying, "No, you can't kill these people. That's wrong. You can't do that." And so, I mean, you know, it's. I think that that's sort of a a healthy thing is that yes we're going to work with you but we don't trust you implicitly because you shouldn't trust anyone implicitly it's a very valid point <clears throat> well 
Well, Hostanese, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. I think a lot of listeners are really going to enjoy this one a lot. And again, I want to thank you so much for uh, coming on. Uh, this has been great, man. <clears throat> thank you so much. And I realize that I'm probably going to piss some people off with this. You know, I'm sure. It's all right. I piss people off all the time, man. So No, I mean, it's just fine. It's, I said, it's like, you know, I... <laughs> I can go all into the horrors of the Mesopotamian gods. It's just that no one's really saying, you know, oh, you know who was great? The Assyrians were the Aztec gods, but no one really says, you know what? The Aztecs, we need to bring back that kind of sacrifice. We need to bring back ball games with human skulls. But they're saying that with Egypt, and I think that's sort of, you know, more important because it's like saying, you know, no one is saying, yeah, eat uranium. It's good for you. They don't think they are. But people are, you know, saying, oh, you know, smoking helps your cheese out. So it's, you know, you focus on the things that might actually help people instead of just seeming like a dumbass saying, don't set yourself on fire. Yeah. And it means I've tried to illustrate, you know, again, this is like the kind of stuff that I mean, you know, people with access uh, under the Army Psychological Warfare Command, I mean, have been discussing, you know, which is why I think that this is a relevant topic to get into and uh, just some of the implications for that, especially in light of some of the subjects we looked at on the farm with Barbara Marks Hubbard and some of this other stuff. Um, So again, Austin, I want to thank you so much. This has been a, a great conversation, man. And uh, again, um, thank all you listeners out there for listening. I hope you guys have enjoyed this as much as we have. On that note, we will sign off for now. As always, good night and good luck to you all. Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki up. Sick and tired of fucking up. Sick and tired of pushing luck. In it. Swallow what I'm about to spit Don't got 86 from the copper queen for singing this I took it to the go Jay We were ready, my people there, they feeling me Down low, skin low, more characters than Stephen King Said I'm just working at the quarry, y'all I ain't in a hurry, y'all Come on, baby, pick me up Out here in my wiki up Stuck down in the stick Hut is hot as hell, I tell you what Put it up and knock it down Moving on that big around Come on, mama, jump down Turn around, do it for me Stick it out, say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump, baby, we gotta go Hands tied, blindfold Jump into that battle zone I said it's time to get the fuck out Cause they done let the wolves out Coming with that heat, mama shooting up the street Mama fight or flight adrenaline You feel that little tingle in your feet Mama no retreat, mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street, tell me that you good for it You want peace, go to war for it Say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump baby, we gotta go Screaming with me, scream Geronimo Can't patrol it off from Berlin to the Great Wall The greatest walls are bound to fall 
lies in Vato about a Genghis Chapo. Come on, legalize it, no need to advertise it. The weed cures a cancer, everybody even caught a realized if a farmer don't make cash money when we rock that stash, honey. Best believe they sooner take it out your ass, Sunday. Come on, the man ain't getting wealthy with people getting healthy, right? Talking about high AZ, talking about that BMC. We got no economy if we ain't got no enemy. The Popo and the BP, DHS and Army, Honeywell and L3, Razor Wires, UAVs, Officer, excuse me, please. Said I'm just eating my burrito, not the droids you're looking for. See you all on payday, see you at the Safeway Bisbee lives on crazy checks, BP on that fast pay I sing my hooly blues, y'all I don't make the rules, y'all Just paying my dues, y'all But I'm just saying, sorry hippies If Great White Father don't make payroll Forget about your maple 